Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Zayani Bat, Personal Finance Writer Investors Chronicle, and Andrew Liebes, Lead Manager of Pantheon International. If you're a growth investor of a high-risk appetite and long-term investment horizon, as well as having investments in companies listed on public markets, you may invest or be considering investing in private equity, companies not listed on public markets. Most private investors don't have enough money to invest in private equity directly. So one of the main ways to get exposure to this asset is private equity investment trusts. These fall into two main categories, trusts which invest directly in unlisted companies and trusts which invest in other private equity funds. Andrew, Pantheon International is an example of the latter, a fund of funds. Why do you prefer to invest in other private equity funds rather than directly into unlisted companies? Well, good morning. Um, What we're aiming to do with Pantheon International is to provide shareholders with an opportunity to participate um, in the best that the private equity market has to offer globally. And we think that that can be better done by selecting best-of-breed managers uh, in their particular specialisms, wherever they may operate around the world, and to incorporate investments with those managers into our portfolio through primary, secondary, and co-investment, which I can talk more about uh, later. But we think that the better investments can be made by specialist managers who are at the top of their game in the various markets in which we invest. Okay. Now, there's different types of private equity funds. So which types do you invest in? We have the flexibility within Pantheon International to invest in uh, primary uh, fund investments. And that's that's um, essentially when we're investing in a fund that is first being raised, when it is being raised. But we're also able to buy secondary interests in those uh, same private equity funds. And the great advantage of that is it's a closed market. The barriers to entry are, are very high. Not everyone can get access to the information. But because we have the relationships with the managers that we do, we have access to that information and we get the support of managers in being able to buy those interests. What is a, a secondary fund? A secondary uh, opportunity might arise if an investor in a 10-year private equity fund decides perhaps after five or six years that they, uh, they've had a change of, of heart, a change of strategy, and so they want to realize their investment in that fund. Um, as a specialist investor, we're able to buy those interests. And as I say, there can be great advantage in doing so because of the level of information that we have, which gives us um, an advantage and a barrier to entry in, in that market. We're also able to invest in co-investments, and um, this is this is an enhancement of the value that we're providing because we're being offered opportunities by the managers with whom we're investing to invest directly in the companies in which they uh, are, which they're putting into their portfolios, and that's a great advantage to us because it means that for some of the, the companies that they're investing in, we get access to to an investment in, in in those businesses, and we don't have to pay the management fee. So again, it's a significant. Um, advantage. The funds you hold invest in different types of private equity deals. What are these different types of deals and how do they make returns for their investors? I suppose the the market can be thought about um, as a spectrum of activity ranging from venture capital funds, which are um, investing in businesses which are, are newly established or recently established, 
growth funds, which can back the development of those businesses at, at a, a sort of later but fairly early stage still of, of, fund, of, a, of a company's development. And then management buyout um, funds. And this is where a uh, private equity manager will take full control of a business. So whereas in the first two instances, you're investing as a minority investor with particular protections and controls negotiated as part of that investment, in a buyout, you're always taking control. And that's an important feature within a buyout because it enables you to do things in terms of the capital structure which gives you more control over the risks of, of holding that business and that capital structure, and it's an important ingredient. I would say the one unifying theme it, across all of the market, and I think this is a feature of the private equity market, which doesn't exist to the same extent in other areas of the equity market, is the very strong alignment that is established uh, between management and the owners, the private equity owners, and then us as investors in the fund, through an alignment of equity ownership. And that alignment of equity ownership is critically important, in, we think, in, in getting us the full benefit of, of being an equity owner. You've got exposure to private equity investments with different maturity profiles. Why and um, how can investments maturity make a difference to its returns? Well, if you think about the way that we invest capital, it is that we are committing capital typically to 10-year funds. And the arrangement is that uh, we will commit an amount of capital, let's say, um, for the sake of argument, £10 million to a fund. And that capital is then drawn down over a five to six-year investment period. And it's drawn down to build a portfolio of investments. Typically, in a buyout fund, that might be between 12 and 20 investments through the course of that five to six-year period. So then those companies that are invested in are, are um, transformed uh, according to the plan um, established with management in the first instance, and then they're uh, sold when um, they can be sold uh, to a strong uh, in in a strong competitive bidding process that effectively gets maximum value for that for that equity. So if you think about the the timeframes um, involved in terms of in terms of investment and divestment, there are periods of a fund when cash is going in, and there are periods of a fund at the latter part when cash is basically coming out. And so the great advantage that we have in in building our portfolio is that we can make sure that we have a mix of less mature funds where cash is going in and more mature funds where cash is coming back to us. And that um, is important in enabling us to control the risks within our vehicle so that we can always maintain a cash generative profile. And PIP is well constructed from that point of view. It means that we are relatively low risk way of, of owning all of the assets that we do because we're able to, to maintain a cash generative profile. So it is effectively a way of smoothing your returns. Is that, is that a simple way of putting it? I think it's a way of ensuring that our cash flows are biased towards always being positive at any point in time. And I think that together with that, we also are able to diversify across um, many different um, geographies, strategies and managers. And by investing in different vintages, that also helps to smooth returns. On that point, you, you're saying you're quite diversified. So what areas and sectors of the businesses in which your funds invest? And do you have a preference for funds that target any particular areas? I think it's important to, to note Firstly, that private equity is is drawn to areas of the market which typically have 
quite capital light investment models. So the strong discipline in in investment terms of of getting a good return on capital is that much more appealing often in businesses that require less capital. So most of the portfolio is characterized by businesses that are high in intellectual property and low in big, chunky assets. And so I would say that the sorts of areas that our capital is being invested in is characterized by, as I've said, um, low capital intensity, but very high growth potential, particularly because we're focused on small and mid cap um, sectors. And we think that the growth characteristics are, are stronger in that area. Um, but also in, in sector terms, we like to invest in areas where we think the demographic trends are are positive and sus- sustainably positive because we're long-term investors. So healthcare is an important sector for us. Education is becoming an important sector for us as longevity and a more fragmented workplace, I think, creates many, many opportunities for education through life. Um, we're seeing that play out in in many opportunities to provide you know very significant education platforms, and that's another area that we've that we've been um, heavily invested in. Um, technology is an enabler, so IT represents about a quarter of our portfolio, and again, it's an important opportunity because um, so much of the um, functions, not only in business actually uh, business processes, but also in in the healthcare sector, um, in education, as I mentioned, in government. Many of these uh, processes are being digitized, um, automated, and and the opportunities to invest in businesses that are providing that um, service towards digitization and automation is is a big opportunity for us. Okay, and obviously, areas are any of them particularly fruitful at the moment? I would say the areas that we are perhaps seeing um, some of the most exciting returns from come from, again, back to this point of, of automation and, and digitization. It's about providing tools to businesses to enable them to operate uh, more efficiently. And um, we've invested in a number of companies, for example, that provide specialist software for business management or for practice management in the healthcare sector. And those businesses themselves tend to be quite specialized as to which as to which bits of the healthcare sector they might um, they might address with with their with their software products. And then because the market is so large, um, the opportunity to consolidate within these subsectors and build businesses of scale and get scale efficiencies into those businesses has been a big, big feature of um, what we've been able to do. So that's been an important area, and we've had some great returns out of it. I think in the financial um, sector, we've seen payment systems become an ever more um, important part. People can hardly recognize their own coinage today because um, paying some, paying for something with cash is, is uh, becoming a, uh, a rarer event. And all of that is being supported by payment processing systems provided digitally. And again, we've invested successfully in a number of those, and we've just seen one of those uh, IPO recently, a company called Nexi, which is, is, provides the, the main um, payments platform in, in, uh, in Italy. Okay. Um, and what would be some other examples of companies um, in these areas? I think the um, other examples that um, that I've mentioned, um, healthcare is 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 a is a good sector, and partly, as I said, in terms of automation of practice management, and and that's that's it. But also in the provision of care. Turning to geography, over half of your assets are listed in the US. Why? The 
the US has been, I suppose, the longest developed market, but also it is a large homogenous market anyway, and its capital markets um, provide a good basis, I think, for private equity to operate uh, very functionally. So as the deepest capital market, as the most fertile market for entrepreneurs with large domestic um, market, um, as the world's leading technology creator, uh, there's just so much more opportunity in a single national market. And because of that, it represents rather more than half of our portfolio. And I think it I think it will continue to do so. I think that, you know, we're a long-term investor and this is where uh, the substance of the market is 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 deepest and, and most promising. US listed equities are arguably expensive, but do unlisted US companies offer better value? I think they do. And I think that, that part of that is a function of the amount of research that a private equity investor is putting into the businesses that it's acquiring. So any any purchase by a private equity investor will typically be the the result of perhaps even a couple of years or more of work on a particular theme within a within a sector and the businesses that it's buying are extremely well researched and very well known to them. So I think with the level of information that private equity investors have which I think is is on you know by and large more than would be the case for a typical public market investor the private equity market investor is much better placed to be able to judge when an asset is viable at a price that is that is viable and so often it's looking at businesses which it can't buy because they're just out of reach in terms of price so if it is buying it's making that judgment based on very very sound information. And we think that, therefore, pricing, while all equity is expensive, the decisions behind the the purchases of, of, of equity in the private equity market, we believe, are tested and superior, actually, to, to um, that same process in, in the public markets. I think, too, there are opportunities for us to buy more cheaply through the secondaries market often. So we are typically buying into funds and buying funds at a discount to their um, inherent value. And again, that's that's a great opportunity to add value to the investments that, that we're making. When you're selecting um, these private equity funds, um, what attributes do you look for? Um, we're looking for funds that have a clear competitive edge. And that means um, managers who are investing in their management company and um, bringing resources in that we think give them a competitive edge over others doing the same the same thing. Um, we're looking for funds that we think are have got a sort of sustainable um, operating model in terms of their own management companies, and that means um, understanding how these management companies operate, um, thinking about the decision making structures, thinking about the ownership structures, and whether the, whether those look viable over the long term and are consistent with being owned by the people who are really creating value in those in those funds. And so we select funds that we think can both compete well in their market niches that are investing in attractive market niches and who we think are set up with the ability to, um, to manage uh, their growth and succession issues that arise in long-term businesses over long periods of time. And that actually rules out quite a lot. So um, we end up um, selecting a a small subset of the things that are that are presented to us because those are those are high 
high thresholds to cross. Now, you take a conservative approach to balance sheet management. What do you mean by this and how do you go about achieving it? What we really mean by it is that while leverage is a feature of the private equity Market, leverage being debt. Leverage being yeah. debt, and mm. and it's part of what helps to generate um, a return through a through a um, capital efficient structure. The form of that, though, is that it is always uh, contained, if you like, the risks of of leverage are always contained within the particular investment. So the funds that we invest in are not themselves leveraged, but they use leverage for the individual investments. And none of those investments can contaminate each other. It's not like being a a conglomerate. Mm. Similarly, we don't invest in, in leveraged funds and we are not ourselves leveraging our funds. So there is no leverage at, mm. at our level and we're very careful to manage a balance sheet which we think has um, robust characteristics to make sure that we can finance um, all of the things that we'll need to over the course of our ownership of the fund, whatever happens in the cycle. And that's front and foremost uh, how we think about managing our balance sheet. No private equity offers obviously some good opportunities, but it is a high-risk area. What would you say are the main risks at the moment, um, specifically to you know the things that you're investing in? I think that the thing that one always has to remember is that you know economies have cycles, and everything is easier to manage in a in a um, sort of positive, buoyant um, time in the cycle, and so. Um, every time that we make an investment, we always have to uh, imagine how things are going to operate in less buoyant conditions. And I think that is particularly true today. So the risks, I think, um, of investing today is that you get capital structures wrong, that you pick the wrong sorts of investment in um, an economy that looks like it's it's going to weaken and so through all of the investments that we're doing at the moment, we're very conscious of the outlook, that uh, a potentially weaker outlook in terms of, of economic growth and conscious of how that might impact the business plans that we're putting together for these, for these investments. And so I think that that really is, is the risk that you've just got to be very careful of what you do um, and particularly so before you enter more difficult periods of the economic cycle. Pantheon International and other private equity trusts often trade on double-digit discounts to net asset value, despite having made good returns over the long term. Why is this? I think it's because the market hasn't yet started to build listed private equity structurally into portfolios in the way that has happened in the private markets. So secondary interests typically trade somewhere around net asset value um, and the market for secondary interests has been growing significantly over, over the last several years. So the volumes that trade in the private markets, rather paradoxically, are very much higher than they are in the public markets and yet they trade much better and much closer to, to net asset value. And so I think that really it's a, it's a function of the supply of capital in the listed market not yet getting to that stage. I'm sure it will happen. So in my mind, um, I think that this is, is uncharacteristic of the natural price levels of, of well-managed private equity um, in the listed market. Uh, it's dead frustrating, but also perhaps a bit of an opportunity for, for, um, for uh, investors who, who might regard it as a cushion to the risk of investing in private in, in equity. Mm. I mean, at the moment, you are on a discount of around 18%. Are you doing anything, for example, share buybacks to try and narrow it? 
we take the discount very seriously because I think yeah, we're absolutely clear that the experience of shareholders is all about the, what happens to the to the share price. So our efforts are to focus first and foremost on performance. We've generated 11.9% per annum um, over the last 32 years that PIP has been listed. And um, our aim all, always is to do better than we have done. So we remain extremely focused on generating that long-term performance. And ultimately, I think that is what determines your, your share price. I think that the other things that we can do is to make sure that we're communicating as best as we can. And so I think that our head of IR, Vicky uh, Bradley, has been putting a lot of effort into improving the materials that we're putting out for, for the benefit of, of shareholders and the communication, and indeed just going to talk to lots of shareholders. Um, and hopefully that, that will also help. In terms of buybacks, um, we do do buybacks occasionally for, for um, investment purposes. And I think over the past few years, we've probably bought back about 15% of our um, shares overall. Um, so we're not shy of it, but we only do it for investment purposes. We're not trying to close the discount with a buyback, with a, a buyback, because ultimately, you know, the market is will do what the market does. And I think that our focus needs to be on generating great performance. Thank you, Andrew. A very helpful update on Pantheon International and the state of the private equity market. If you're under forty, saving for retirement is probably the last thing on your mind, especially if you've got mountains of student debt. But not saving for retirement, even if it seems like a long time away, could be a big mistake. Zayani, you've been looking at this. Why? So if you start saving early, even if you save small amounts, your money has a longer time period to grow and it could develop into a large sum. And this is important because it gives you the option to retire when you want to and how you want to. How can you start saving for retirement? Well, the first place to begin would be your workplace pension, if that's an option that's available to you. The way it works is that with a workplace pension, employees must put in a minimum of 5% and employers must contribute a minimum of 3% of the employee's salary. You can contribute more and your employer would usually match you up to a certain point. Um, aside from this, you also receive tax relief from on contributions. So money that you would have put paid into tax would instead be diverted into your pension and the level of tax relief you receive depends on your tax bracket. Obviously, you know, some young people, new jobs, not great salaries, but other people are perhaps um, a bit bit luckier and um, have quite a bit of money. So if they've still got money to save after having made this contribution to their workplace pension, um, you know, what else could they invest in? And perhaps very importantly, self-employed people don't have an employer, you know, making those contributions. What, What can they do? So in that case, you can look into investing in a lifetime individual savings account or a LISA. Um, LISAs offer everyone a flat 25% bonus from the government, uh, depending on how much you contribute up to £1,000 a year. Um, They're quite flexible, so they're designed for either retirement or to save for a first home, which is obviously very important for millennials. Anyone between the ages of 18 and 40 can open one, um, and you can save up to £4,000 a year till the age of 50. So the two types, there's a cash Lisa and a stocks and shares Lisa. And the one that you pick depends on um, your growth horizon. So if you, for example, um, want to buy a house within the next five years, then a cash Lisa would be better. But uh, stocks and shares Lisa is better for the long term. 
Okay, I mean, that sounds like um, great, lots of options, but are there any drawbacks? I mean, nothing's perfect, right? Right. <laughs> so, as I said, you can only save it, you can only use it to for your first home or for retirement. Otherwise, you have to wait until the age of 60 to access it, which is five years more than you'd have to wait for your workplace pension, which is 55. And when you're at that stage, those five years make a big difference, especially if you want a career change or you want to retire or go part-time. The penalty for withdrawing money before that is quite hefty as well. It's 25% of the amount that's withdrawn. So that would claw back your government bonus and usually some of the individual's own savings. Is there anything else you could consider saving into over and above your workplace pension or if you're self-employed? Yeah, so if you've saved money into your workplace pension and into a LISA, then the next place you could look at is a self-invested personal pension or a SIP. Um, With a SIP, you choose the provider when and how you want to invest and what you'd like to invest in. Um, You can either pay regular deposits or one-off payments, but there are fees to pay. So you'd pay for the wrapper, you'd pay for investments held within the SIP, so dealing fees, for example. But like a workplace pension, you can withdraw the first 25% tax-free. After that, the rest is taxed. Okay, thank you, Zayani, and see her full article on how to start saving for retirement in this week's money section and the website. That brings us to the end of today's show, but also see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on private equity investment trusts, saving for retirement and lifetime ISAs. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.